Thank you for joining us on the sermon podcast for Mars Hill Cumberland Presbyterian Church. We love being able to distribute our sermons in this format, but we would love it even more if you could join us in person at 5208 Crow Mountain Road in Russellville, Arkansas, or online at the Mars Hill Cumberland Presbyterian Church Facebook page. We have Sunday school classes at 9 a.m. with a worship service right after at 10 a.m. Let's now prepare our hearts to hear a message from God's Word. Being honest, a minute ago I almost didn't want to stop praying. It seems like there's a lot of things in our world, a lot of things going on in our denomination, a lot of things going on really in all of our lives that we need to pray about. And I feel like the majority of the, the majority of the time, if we're all being honest, we just don't take the time to pray. And I mentioned that last week. We just don't take the time to pray the way we should. Um, people will say, well, Logan, why do, you, why do you spend so long in the service praying? Well, because I guarantee you that I'm praying more in the service now than what you're praying throughout the week. And it's not just, it's not just you I'm talking to either. Because my prayer life... Well, my prayer life needs work. And I think if we're being honest, if we're really being honest, we all can spend more time in prayer. So this morning, we're going to be in John chapter 14. And we're just going to read one verse, and then I'm going to go all over the Bible. Um, I don't have very much this morning, um, so maybe we won't be too long. Like I can show you. This, this is it. <laughs> page and a half. That's it. Um, John 14, and we're just going to read verse 15, and when you get to John 14, 15, if you would, stand for the reading of God's Word. John chapter 14, verse 15, hear the word of the Lord. If you love me, you will keep my commands. This ends the reading of God's Word the Word of God for the people of God. Let's pray. Gracious God and Heavenly Father, this is your Word and we are your people. And in this one verse, there is so much truth. In this one verse, there is so much power. In this one verse, there is so much punch. Lord, it's a punch to the gut, but it's one that we need. And so, Father, we ask that as we leave this place this morning, we would not only understand the need for our obedience and the need for our love, but we would also understand, Lord, that you offer the things freely to us that we lack. Lord, you stand with arms wide open, offering us grace, offering us mercy, offering us forgiveness, and you also offer us empowerment. We thank you for all of that and more. And we ask, Father, that you would bless our time together this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. So, if you've been following along for the last two weeks, uh, what I wanted to do initially was I wanted to go through John 14 and really uh, the different places that Jesus talks about the Holy Spirit, and I wanted to show how everything that Jesus says about the Holy Spirit is reiterated and elaborated on throughout the rest of the New Testament. And I think that's important because we don't really have a 
I feel like we don't really have a solid understanding sometimes of who the Holy Spirit is and what the Holy Spirit does. We understand the Holy Spirit is the third person of the Trinity, uh, but we don't quite understand who He is in that role and what He does. And in a way, it's almost like that information is obscured because the job of the Holy Spirit is to shine the spotlight on Jesus. The job of the Holy Spirit is to reveal who Jesus is to you. And so sometimes if we just focus, sometimes if we, if we really don't take the time to understand who the, Spirit, who the Holy Spirit is, we might not know. But there's a lot the Bible says about the Holy Spirit, and I think it's important for us to understand what the Bible says. Because generally we have this idea that, well, we'll just leave that Holy Spirit stuff to those Pentecostal Charismatics over there, and we'll just keep doing our thing. And what our thing is, is we don't know anything about the Holy Spirit. <laughs> and so I want, us to, I want us to change that for multiple reasons. Number one, uh, if we're going to be a people of the book, we need to understand what the book says. If we're going to be a people of the Bible, we've got to take it as it is, in whole. And that means looking at all the parts we may not ordinarily look at. That also means looking at all the parts we may not be comfortable with. That also means looking at all of the parts that, that really confront us deep down. And so throughout this time together as we study the work of the Holy Spirit, I want us to see how uh, the Holy Spirit is is shown throughout the, throughout the New Testament. And so what, uh, what we did last week is we looked at how the Holy Spirit helps us in our prayer life, and we saw how that information about how the Holy Spirit helps us in our prayer life is reiterated in Romans chapter 8, verses 26 and 27, where Paul tells us that the Holy Spirit intercedes for us. What's really interesting is that you can go through John 14 specifically, and you can see how everything Jesus says from John 14, 7 on down is reiterated actually in the 8th chapter of Romans. All of it. For example, when we talked about prayer last week, you know, Jesus says, you know, whatever you ask in my name, I'll do it. He says that in John 14, 13 and 14. Well, Paul says in Romans 8, 26 and 27 that the Holy Spirit intercedes for us when we don't know what to pray. In John 14, 15, where we're at this morning, Jesus says, if you love me, you'll obey my commandments. But then at the beginning of Romans chapter 8, Paul talks about how we can obey and how we can, and how we can follow Jesus' commands because the Holy Spirit is residing in us. The Holy Spirit has brought us from a place of death to a place of life. The Holy Spirit lives in us, empowers us, and so we can follow Jesus because the Spirit is resting inside of us. And then, on down, in, on down to John 14, 18, Jesus says, I will not leave you as orphans, I am coming to you. And he, he refers to the coming of the Holy Spirit in that way. And then, Paul in Romans chapter 8, verses 14 through 17, tells us that we have been given the Holy Spirit as the spirit of adoption that comes into our hearts to cause us to cry, Abba, Father. And then in John 14, 27, Jesus talks about peace. He says, peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. I do not give to you as the world gives. Don't let your hearts be troubled or fearful. And then, in Romans 8, 
31 through 39, Paul talks about how, how nothing can, celebra- can, can separate us from the love of God. And so what, when Jesus talks about peace in Romans 14, 27, and Paul talks about nothing separating us from the love of God, he's essentially talking about the same thing. They're both talking about assurance. And so those are, the, those are the ideas that we're going to really cover over the next few weeks. And then I plan, after we get through all of that, I plan to go back to Luke 11 and talk about that passage uh, where Jesus specifically tells us that we can ask for the Holy Spirit and he will grant him to us. And so this morning we're going to focus our attention on the ideas of repentance and obedience. But to kind of introduce this idea, I want to talk about um, a housekeeper by the name of Emily Wilson. Emily Wilson was the housekeeper for a man named John Kenneth Galbraith. And and that name may not ring a bell, but uh, John Kenneth Galbraith was an economist, he was a diplomat, public official, and he was an esteemed intellectual throughout the 60s, 70s. and, And then in 1982, he published his memoirs where he talked about his housekeeper named Emily Wilson. And here's what Galbraith reported in his book about her. He said, it it had been a wearying day, and I asked Emily to hold all telephone calls while I took a nap. Shortly thereafter, the phone rang. President Lyndon B. Johnson was calling from the White House. Get me Ken Galbraith. This is Lyndon Johnson. He's sleeping, Mr. President. He said not to disturb him. Well, wake him up. I want to talk to him now. No, Mr. President. I work for Galbraith, not you. When I called the president back, he could scarcely control his pleasure. He said, tell that woman I want her here in the White House. (laughs) And so what does that little story, what does that little anecdote tell us? It tells us that obedience is something to be admired. It tells us that whenever we, uh, it tells us that whenever we set ourselves to be obedient, Um, that it it draws people's attention, whether that means attention from the president, such as in this case, or whether it means the attention from those around us. For example, Jesus tells us to let your your light so shine that all men may see your your good works and give glory to your Father in heaven. And so how does our light shine? Well, it shines through obedience to God's word. And so here's what we have to understand. How do you get to that point of obedience? Because I think we can all look at our lives and see where our our obedience is lacking. Well, I think it's because if we want to understand, if we want to be more obedient to God in our lives, we have to understand that proper obedience begins first with proper repentance. And so where does repentance start? Well, Jesus starts off this statement by saying, if you love me. What starts with love? Obedience comes from a place of love. And so, obedience comes from a place of love. Repentance also comes from a place of love because whenever your heart is cracked open, well, see, one of the jobs of the Holy Spirit is to convict you of your sin. And what happens is when the Holy Spirit convicts you, He cracks open your hard heart 
turns it into a heart of flesh. And so when your heart and so when that heart of flesh comes through, right? When your heart of flesh comes through, you begin to get a love for God that wasn't there before. Or if it was there before, it's now there in greater measure. And so you begin to you begin to want to repent, not because you're afraid of hell, not because you just want to go to heaven when you die, but because you genuinely love God, you want to please God. And I think that's and I think that's what we have to understand. We we can't just assume or we can't just assume the mercy of God because we just fear hell and want to go to heaven. Because the way it works, the way evangelism has worked over the years is that evangelists will come through, they'll preach this gospel message and say, you better turn your life around or you're going to go to hell in a handbasket, you're going to fry there for all of eternity. And there's some truth to that, right? I've, I've preached hell hot and heavy here before and I probably will again. And it's because I think we need to understand that hell is a real place. But our repentance do, doesn't, genuine repentance doesn't come from the fact that we fear hell. It comes from the fact that we love God. And I feel like there's a lot of folks who have devoted their entire lives to loving heaven more than they love Jesus. And you can't do that. You have to prioritize your loves because you'll never genuinely repent. You'll never genuinely obey. You'll never have a healthy walk with God as long as you love something more than Jesus, even if that something is heaven. Am I making sense? And so, proper, proper obedience begins with proper repentance. And proper repentance is rooted in a love for God that's created by the Holy Spirit. And so whenever our obedience lacks, we need to go back and see where our love is lacking. Because Jesus says, if you love me, you will obey my commands. Because what happens is, in the moment of our sin, and in the moment of our disobedience, um, our loves are out of order. In that moment that we sin, in that moment that we disobey, in that moment that we actively choose not to follow God, not to do what we know is right, it's because we love ourselves in that moment more than we love God. It's because we love our satisfaction more than we love God. We love our ego more than we love God. We love our desires more than we love God. And so whenever we understand that our obedience isn't where it needs to be, we need to go back and reevaluate where our love is. So repentance begins when we go to God and we ask Him to help us get our loves in order. Our confession of faith in chapter 4, section 5, in the Cumberland Presbyterian Confession of Faith, it says repentance is that attitude toward God wherein sinners firmly resolve to forsake sin, trust in Christ, and live in grateful obedience to God. And so, where I think our confession of faith, what I think our confession of faith is firmly saying is that there is, there's these steps to repentance. And repentance isn't simply saying, I'm sorry, and moving on with your life. Repentance is a firm resolve to forsake sin, first of all. And see, here's the thing. That's important because repentance doesn't just include forsaking sin. Repentance includes reorienting your life because your life is always headed in a direction. Your life is always going somewhere. 
So you're so you can't just not go in a certain direction then and then expect to wind up where you need to go. You need to turn your life around. It's a firm resolve to forsake sin, and then after you forsake sin, what do you do? You trust in Christ. You forsake sin, you trust in Christ. And what do you do when you trust in Christ? You begin to live in grateful obedience to God. And you might hear that and you think, well, where do we see that pattern in Scripture? I think we see it pretty clearly in Psalm 51. In Psalm 51, we have a prayer of David. And this is, for context, I'm sure some of you know because it's a very familiar psalm and I'm sure it's been preached on and talked, talked about a lot. But Psalm 51 is that prayer where David has sinned with Bathsheba. And so now he's coming to God. He's laying it all out on the table. And he understands where his sin has brought him. He understands the damage that his sin has done. And so now he comes to God. And in Psalm 51, he says, Be gracious to me, God, according to your faithful love. According to your abundant compassion, blot out my rebellion, completely wash away my guilt, and cleanse me from my sin. For I am conscious of my rebellion, and my sin is always before me. Against you, you alone, I have sinned and done this evil in your sight. So you are right when you pass sentence, and you are blameless when you judge. Indeed, I was guilty when I was born. I was sinful when my mother conceived me. Surely you desire integrity in the inner self, and you teach me wisdom deep within. Purify me with hyssop, and I will be clean. Wash me, and I will be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones you have crushed rejoice. Turn your face away from my sins and blot out all my guilt. God, create a clean heart for me and renew a steadfast spirit within me. See that? This is, this is verses 10 through 12. Pay attention to this. God, create a clean heart for me and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not banish me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore the joy of your salvation to me and sustain me by giving me a willing spirit. And so, throughout the beginning of the psalm, there's an acknowledgement of sin that's there. And then he turns to God. He asks God for a clean spirit, for a renewed heart. And then, right after that, in verse 13, he says, Then I will teach the rebellious your ways and sinners will return to you. Save me from the guilt of my bloodshed, O God. God of my salvation and my tongue will sing of your righteousness. Lord, open my lips and my mouth will declare your praise. You do not want a sacrifice or I would give it. You are not pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifice pleasing to God is a broken spirit. You will not despise a broken and humbled heart, God. And so what does David do? He acknowledges his sin, he turns to God, and then, and then verses 13 through 17 lays out his grateful obedience. And so this psalm, Psalm 51, it's a good example of how the Holy Spirit helps us in our weakness, restores us, and sets us on a path toward obedience. And so here's the deal. You can't pray a prayer like Psalm 51 unless the Holy Spirit convicts you. Sure, you can say the words, 
but you can't mean it. You can't mean it unless the Holy Spirit convicts you. You don't know what to pray for unless the Holy Spirit gives you the words. We talked about that last week. And think about what David says. He asked God to restore the joy of his salvation. He asked God not to take the Holy Spirit from him. Let me ask you this. Is David in danger of the Holy Spirit being taken from him? Maybe not. I don't think so. I don't think this is a I don't think this is a I don't think this is a situation of well that was the old covenant now this is the new covenant. We don't have that danger anymore. I don't think danger I don't think David was in any real danger of the Holy Spirit being taken from him, but here's what I do think. I think David felt like he was in that danger because here's the thing whenever you sin and you hold that sin in your heart You have no assurance. You have no assurance. Because whenever you have sin in your heart and you just let it stay there and you let it fester, it creates insecurity. And the reason it creates insecurity is because you know you're not doing what you should. And so understanding the the theology of salvation that we do, we might start to think... Well, where do I stand with God? Why, you know, why am I feeling all of this insecurity? Why am I feeling all of this? Because, you know, am I really saved? Am I really saved? Well, here's the, here's the question. Do you trust Christ? And if you trust Christ, do you understand what Christ has to say about your sin? Do you understand what Christ has to say about your obedience? If you love me, you will. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. Do you understand what Christ has done for you on the cross? Do you understand that Christ sends the Holy Spirit and doesn't just send the Holy Spirit so that you so that uh, you have this ecstatic experience, but sends the Holy Spirit so that you can have a real understanding of how you're supposed to live, how you're supposed to move, how you're supposed to have your being in your walk with God. The reason we feel insecurity whenever we hold sin in our heart is because we know very well that our lives are not in line with God's will for our life. And if you feel that kind of insecurity, if you feel that kind of conviction when you sin and when you hold sin in your heart, it's a, very, it's a good thing because you understand that God hasn't abandoned you. God hasn't left you to your own desires. God is convicting you because He desires that walk with you. Because here's the thing. Unsaved people, people who who don't have a real relationship with God, they don't care about their sin. They don't feel anything when they sin. They have no concern for their souls. They have no concern for their walk with God. And so when you feel that tug, when you feel that conviction, when you feel that insecurity, you should understand it's because God loves you. And it's because God wants to bring you back. Which tells us something about obedience. 
It tells us that obedience can only come from a heart that's been broken enough to see sin for what it is. There's a character in C.S. Lewis's book, The Voyage of the Dawn Treader, and this character's name is Eustace. And Eustace is a mean, nasty brat of a child. He always insists on his, own, on his own way. He's selfish and he's generally an unpleasant figure. And eventually, after stealing a magical bracelet from a dragon horde and putting it on, he turns into a dragon himself. And in a moment of loneliness and desperation, he begins to weep and cry. And then Aslan, who is the, the great lion who serves as the representation of Christ in the story, he offers to undragon him by removing his dragon skin. Now, Eustace had tried to remove the dragon skin himself, but he was never successful. But Aslan comes along and he gets every bit of it off, and here's how it took place from Eustace's perspective. He said, the very, the very first tear he made was so deep that I thought it had gone right into my heart. And when he began pulling the skin off, it hurt worse than anything I've ever felt. The only thing that made me able to bear it was just the pleasure of feeling the stuff peel off. Well, he peeled the beastly stuff right off, just as I thought I had done myself three other times. Only they hadn't hurt. Only they hadn't hurt. See, Eustace's problem was that whenever he was trying to peel off the dragon skin himself, he didn't go deep enough. And it didn't hurt. And see, that's, that's, it's like our sin. It's like us. Like every time we try to set ourselves at right with God, and we say, God, I can do this myself. God, I can beat this sin. God, I can, I can offer myself up to you in, in, in perfect obedience. We never quite get it right. Because we can never go deep enough in trying to peel the dragon skin off of ourselves. See, here's the thing. I can't give myself shots. I mean, maybe I could. There's some people out there, they take insulin, they can give themselves shots all the time. I can't do it. Because I can't, I can't hurt myself, right? I have a block against it. It's the same reason I can't wear contact lenses. Like, I know it's not going to hurt. Cognitively, I know that, but I've tried wearing contact lenses. I can't even put them in. Because what it requires, whenever you get a shot, it requires that they prick you a little bit. It requires that they go deep. And see, it's, it's like that with our sin. It requires someone else to go deep and yank it out of our being. And so here's what Eustace says. He says, well, he peeled the beastly stuff right off just as I thought I had done it myself three other times, only it hadn't hurt. And there it was, lying on the grass, only ever so much thicker and darker and more knobbly looking than the others had been. And there, was a, and there I was, smooth and soft, as a peeled switch, and smaller than I had been. Then he caught hold of me. I didn't like that much, for I was very tender underneath now and I had no skin on. And then he threw me into the water. And it smarted like anything, but only for a moment. After that, it became perfectly, deli After that, it became perfectly delicious, and as soon as I started swimming and splashing, I found that all the pain had gone from my arm, and then I saw why. 
I'd turned into a boy again. After a bit, the lion took me and dressed me in new clothes. And so, when C.S. Lewis is writing The Voyage of the Dawn Treader, and he writes this scene, he writes this scene as an allegory of what conversion and baptism look like. See, whenever you repent, and I'm not just talking about the, the you know, sinner's prayer or the beginning of your journey with God. I'm talking about every time you go to God and, and ask Him to, to help you set things right and reevaluate your love. Every time you go to God, He peels the dragon skin right off. He goes deep and he pulls every bit of it out. And so what C.S. Lewis is doing here is he's showing us a picture of really what initially what conversion looks like because he's got this scene where Eustace is converted from a dragon to a boy and then he's got this instance where Aslan just tosses him in the water and it's a picture of baptism. And so the same thing happens for us. When we come to Christ initially, now I'm talking about initially when we come to Christ. When we talk about when we come to Christ, we offer ourselves up to Him to forsake our sin, to come to Him in repentance. And then what happens? What happens is that we're baptized, unless we were baptized as an infant. But generally, we're baptized afterward because that's how things work in the South. Um, but we come to Christ and we're baptized, and we, then we, we might go off the beaten path, as it were. We might find ourselves struggling in our faith. We might find ourselves struggling in our walk with God. We might find ourselves struggling with our obedience to God. And whenever that happens, where do we find our assurance? Where, to, where, do, we find our, where do we find our footing when that happens? We find our footing in what God has done for us. We find our assurance in what Christ has done for us. How do we know that when we go to God and ask Him to help us set our loves in order, how do we know that when we go to God and ask Him to help us prioritize our lives and ask Him to help us to, to set things right, how do we know that He will actually do that? We know that because He sent His Son to the cross. He gave, us the, he gave us the greatest gift anybody could ever give. He gave us the gift of His Son. And the salvation that was created for us on the cross was imparted to us in faith and repentance. And that faith and repentance is shown in a picture in our baptism. And so, what happens... What guarantee do we have that God will bring us back? What guarantee do we have that God will set us right? Our baptism. We have our baptism that communicates to us the salvation that Jesus won for us on the cross. David McLemore using this analogy of C.S. Lewis's character Eustace being undragoned. Here's what David McLemore says. He says, to repent is to be undragoned and unsinned. 
in repentance, we're not asking God to be anything He isn't. In repentance, we're asking God to be all that He promises to be to us. Heart cleanser, spirit renewer, Holy Spirit giver, joy restorer, life upholder, sin remover. In repentance, all we're doing is, all we're doing is asking God to be who He has offered Himself to be for us. That's what repentance is. And we can guarantee that God will do all of that and more because He has been faithful to us. He has been faithful in sending His Son. He has been faithful in giving us the gift of baptism. He has been faithful in giving us the gift of the church to find fellowship with one another. God has been faithful then. He will be faithful now. Even when you've disobeyed, even when you've messed it up, even when you have, even when you have left the path of righteousness to seek out your own pleasure and you realize how bad you've messed it up, God was faithful then and He will be faithful now. Well, that's it. That's all I got. Let's pray. Gracious God and Heavenly Father, this is your word and we are your people. And Lord, you are good even when we're not. Father, I pray, Father, that you would uh, send the Holy Spirit to implant this word of repentance and obedience in our hearts. Let it be like a seed that grows and produces a fruitful harvest. We ask it all in your name. Amen. for joining us for this special message. We hope you were blessed and encouraged by the preaching and teaching of God's Word. Now, may the Lord bless you, keep you, make His face to shine upon you, and give you peace. Amen. Amen.